three months in the most controversial book of the Bible is a long time, isn't it? But not nearly long enough to actually plumb the depths of this particular book. If you're just catching up with us, we are in Revelation 21, which means we have gone through Revelation 1 through 20 over the last three months. So much has happened before you get to Revelation chapter 21, depending on how you interpret scripture, and I've pleaded with you every single week to have an open hand as we have walked through this together, but if you get to Revelation 21, the rapture has occurred, the marriage supper of the Lamb is done, the tribulation is passed, Armageddon is over, the second coming of Jesus is done, the, the judgments are done, the battle between good and evil is over, Satan is gone, Jesus has won, and God begins for some reason to create again. You get to Revelation 21, God shows up for whatever reason, looks at heaven and earth and says, not good enough for my kids. Going to need to upgrade both of those. And he begins to create again. And we're going to do something today. We're going to go a little old school because in the church that I grew up in, my pastor, Pastor Bob Dunlop, would often say this. Whenever he wanted to read scripture to us that he thought was so incredibly personal, he would, he would make a proclamation. He would say, would the people of God stand out of respect for the reading of God's word? So would the people of God stand out of respect for the reading of God's word? Revelation 21 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. If you've had a rough week, here it comes. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Not refurbished, not reconstructed, Brand spanking new. Then he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Be seated if you could. If we're going to finish it right and you're a good old Baptist kid, Pastor Dunlop would finish something like that. And he would say, and may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I recall for some of you. I went to Home Skillet on Tuesday morning. If you have never been to Home Skillet, you need to get a life and go there for breakfast sometime. <laughs> Most amazing little spot. It was a warm, sunny day. I had a corner booth all to myself as an introvert. That's a beautiful thing. I had hot coffee. I had biscuits with chorizo gravy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I had homemade sausage in all of its artery-clogging goodness, and I enjoyed I even had the little chihuahua habanero sauce. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. I had ice-cold water, a commentary on Revelation, and it was just a little slice of heaven. You know why? Because I loved every piece of my morning. The sun, the hot coffee, everything that was going on there, it was just a little slice of heaven for me. This week, we're going to talk about the end of the earth as we know it and the beginning of heaven as scripture describes it. The beginning and the end of the book, the Bible, stand in stark contrast to each other. I put it in your outline this week as the beginning and the end, and it, we're just going to fly through it as quickly as we possibly can. In Genesis, the sun is created as God gives light to the universe. In Revelation, the Son of God replaces the sun as the truest and purest form of light. In Genesis, 
through deception, manipulation, and lies, Satan wins. In Revelation, through the truth, transparency, and honesty of Jesus, Satan ultimately loses. In Genesis, through the open door of a man's heart, sin enters. In Revelation, through the sacrifice of Jesus, sin is forever banished. In Genesis... Adam and Eve are made aware of their vulnerability for the first time, and people hide from God. And the reality is we've been hiding ever since. In Revelation, the doors of eternity are open, and people, instead of hiding from God, are forever welcomed by God. In Genesis, because of sin, grief and sorrow are commonplace. At the end of the book, grief and sin are gone. In the beginning... The earth is cursed. At the end, the earth is blessed. At the start of the story, the tree is untouchable. At the climax of the story, the tree and its fruits are harvested and they bring healing to God's people. In Genesis, paradise is lost. In Revelation, paradise is open. It's on full display. In the first book, death is victorious. In the last book, life is victorious. Because of sin in Genesis, eternity is closed. Because of Jesus in Revelation, eternity is available to everybody, all who would believe. Do you see the contrast? Now, Chuck Swindoll, in his commentary on Revelation, he speaks to our hearts when he says, there'll be no more tears. Because every hurtful memory you've ever had will be replaced. There'll be no more death because mortality will be swallowed up in the eternal life of Jesus. There'll be no more mourning because sorrow will ultimately be completely comforted and understood. There'll be no more wickedness because even the smallest piece of evil will ultimately be banished. There'll be no more closed gates because every gate will be open. There'll be no more curse because Jesus lifts it. Just a little snapshot of what eternity is going to look like for those who choose to believe that Jesus is the way through that door to eternity. I mean, you just look at the first five or six verses of Revelation 21, and you got to ask yourself the question, who in the world is powerful enough to do all that? Jesus, and this is what he says next in verse 6. He said to me, it's done. Already done. Now, I don't want to go all Greek nerd on you, okay, but I will, just for a second, okay? When he says it's done, it's the perfect indicative tense. So here's another way of saying that. Jesus stands up and just says, it's happened, it is happening. Another way of saying it is, they have become. I mean, God is outside of time and space, so he's speaking of the future as if it's already happened, which means everything we're going to talk about today is already completely secured. That's what should allow you as a child of God to not be freaked out when you open up your newspaper, to not be thrown for a complaint. I mean, is anybody else a little embarrassed as to how dependent we are on electricity? <laughs> Just a little, right? I can't go to church because I can't wash my hair. And that's connected to your electrical problem. How? I mean, like, I just don't, I mean, wow, right? Everything we're going to talk about today is more secure than the Puget Sound Energy Power Grid. Amen? (laughs) Jesus goes on, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. In heaven, the water of life is free. It's free. Verse 7, those who victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. I love that little phrase, they will be my children. 
full heirs of everything I have, adopted completely into my family with the full rights and responsibilities of a fully adopted, fully birthright born child of God. I've got a friend who was adopted. He always tells me the same story. When he was adopted, he grew up feeling guilty about the fact that he was adopted. He was ashamed and embarrassed about that until one day he came to a startling conclusion. He said, Grant, I'm adopted. Your parents were stuck with you. My parents picked me. (laughs) If you know Jesus, God picked you. And you are a co-heir with Jesus Christ. Everything that's his is yours. So do yourself a favor. When you're driving home today, if you know Christ, look around and go, this is all mine. Because Jesus said so. One of your birthrights as a child of God is heaven. Let's be honest. Some of us got a weird picture of heaven in our brain, right? I mean, some of us picture ourselves as kind of chubby, half-naked little angels wearing diapers and playing harps, you know? That sounds more like hell to me than it does have, just (laughs) being honest, right? Even if they threw in Philadelphia cream cheese, I'm still not going there, all right? The Bible has a different picture of heaven. Just in the verses we've already heard today, we found the hope of heaven. And I just want to encourage you. We've walked through Antichrist, false prophet, the great harlot and prostitute of Babylon and Rome. And we have been through some dark stuff in the book of Revelation. Now we're going to turn the corner. According to the hope of heaven, God will be our everything when we get there. Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. There'll be no removal, no separation. God will be in the center of everything and we will have full access to him. Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Another way of saying that is I have no need of anything. Heaven is a place where you are fully and completely satisfied. You not only get everything that you need, you also get everything that you want. That's a difference between heaven and earth. Down here, God promises what we need. The problem is we often want stuff we don't need. In heaven, God says, it's all here for you. Everything you need is encapsulated in the Lamb of God. You will never want for anything because He will provide everything for you. Why does that matter today? If you need anything today, the fulfillment of that is in heaven waiting for you. Secondly, the hope of heaven is that our pain will pass away and will make sense. The Bible says he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Did you see that? There'll be no more crying for me. That's good news. (laughs) I'm ecstatic about that. But the old order of things will have passed away. If you're here today dealing with chronic pain, you live with pain every single day, or maybe your life got sideswiped this week and you didn't see it coming, and today you came to church and you're filled with grief and sorrow, if you know Christ, this Bible tells me when you get to heaven, you're also going to get an explanation. You're going to get an answer. God's going to say, why that pain? Why that timing? Why that refining? You're going to get full understanding, and you're also going to get a full picture of the results of what happened if you chose to suffer well. Laurel's oldest brother's name was Alan. Alan was a godly, godly man. I miss him so much. Cancer 
took his life. So many times God would show up and heal him in these little beautiful ways. But ultimately, Alan got to go home to heaven before the rest of us. And we asked hard questions during that time. God, we prayed. We did everything we could. But you wanted to take him home. We don't understand why. God, help us understand the grief and the comfort. We got a little slice of the why when we were at Alan's memorial service. Because I met nurse after nurse, doctor after doctor, hospital staff after hospital staff that came up and said, I have a relationship with Jesus because in the middle of the night, I'd go into Alan's room to check on him and he'd pray over me. And he would talk about how God was sustaining him. He would show us what it meant to really and fully love Jesus. And I wouldn't know God if it wasn't for Alan Harder. You're going to get just a little bit of a slice of how God used your pain to touch somebody else if you chose to welcome him into it and not push him outside of it. Thirdly, the hope of heaven is that he'll make everything new. Verse number five, he was seated on the throne and said, I am making everything new. So think about that. Every hard memory you have is now new. Completely renewed, completely understood, completely replaced. It's just gone. It's been completely recreated. All of your brokenness has been renewed. It's not reinvented. It's not refurbished. It's made completely and totally new. Everything about you has been completely and totally transformed into something new. People are like, Grant, how does that happen? I have no idea. But God loves to make things new. Think about it for a second. If you, if you could just ask God to make just one part of your life new right now, what would it be? Now just take that and expand it out to everything in your life, and that's a picture of heaven. Number four, our hope of heaven is in the fact that our thirst for God will be quenched. Verses six and seven, to the thirsty I'll give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. In heaven, the Bible says that vacuum, God-sized vacuum in the middle of our soul will be overflowed with the water of life that comes from the river of life that flows from the, thre- the, the, from the throne of God. I mean, it's just an incredible picture. I had a buddy call me this week because he's a surfer, has never read Revelation 21 before, and he was completely bummed out when he read there is no sea in heaven. What, I love surfing. He said, God, how, what, what am I going to do? I said, you know, I don't know. But I know this, the water of life is free and it appears to be plentiful. Maybe you'll catch a wave on that. I have no idea how it works. Let your imagination run wild. Poof. All right. My dad used to sing in the bathroom getting ready for church in the morning. I don't know why, but he always seemed to be singing songs about heaven. He'd sing, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me to the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. Make no mistake, God doesn't want you to miss that. He wants you there. And so I believe with all of the love that he can muster in the midst of this beautiful description of heaven, he interrupts us with a bit of a reality check. 
And I read verses 8 and the first part of verse 9, and I'm just like, I don't want to talk about that stuff anymore. Can't we just stay? Let's go back to the gleaming cube with the 12 levels of gems and everything perfect in its nature. I mean, let's go to the good stuff of heaven. Come on, Grant. Don't go backwards. I have to because Jesus does. Verse 8 is a grave warning. He says this, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all the liars... They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. That's the second death. The cowardly, the people who are more afraid of people's opinions than God's opinion. And were too afraid to follow a king that called them to lay down their life fully and completely. Apparently they're not there. The unbelieving, those who thought the empirical scientific method or modern therapeutic deism or secular humanism or the personal belief that you can just pick yourself up by your bootstraps and work a little harder, just be a good person and make a difference. According to this word, anyone who does not believe that Jesus is the king and that Jesus came and Jesus lived and Jesus died and Jesus rose from the dead again, apparently if they didn't believe that, they're not there. The vile, those who thought that evil was okay. The murderers, those who thought it was their prerogative to take a life and place themselves in the role of God. The sexually immoral, those who thought their sexuality was theirs to define and they could do whatever they wanted to with it, with whoever, when, uh, when they wanted to, and it didn't matter how they defined it. And if God w- would have the audacity to actually step into how they defined their sexuality, that their response was to tell God to either mind his own business or keep his opinion to himself. Apparently that has some level of exclusion. Those who practiced the magic arts, those who thought they could dabble outside of God's standard and practice syncretism, because after all, all roads lead to God, don't they? The idolaters, anyone who puts anyone or anything ahead of God, or the liars, those who choose to substitute the truth for a lie. Apparently, God does have a standard, and he doesn't just grade on a curve, and we don't get to to console ourselves thinking that God's just going to slap everybody a high five and wink and say, yeah, just kidding all the way through scripture. Everybody, it's okay. Everybody gets in. I read that this week, and I just wanted to blow right by it. Just like, let's just, let's get on the other side. Let's go back to talking about heaven. I want to get back to the gleaming cube. And then I had to keep coming back to it, and I, and I had to be honest with myself. I read the list, and I have one word for myself. I can't speak for you, but I have one word for myself when I read that list. Guilty. I've spent most of my life living in the fear of human beings and their opinions. I spent the, latter, but the greater part of my adult life professing to be a quote-unquote Christian, but in the bottom of my soul not believing any of it. I've had so many opportunities when I could have chosen between good and evil, and I, just, I chose evil because it looked like it was more fun. I haven't physically killed somebody, but Jesus said if you even think that thought in your brain, you're guilty of it, which means every single time I drive home on the guy and wish the people in front of me dead, I am guilty of murder.
I've had a lustful thought. I'm a guy. And I could lie to you and say, well, it was way back in middle school, but apparently the liars are included in the list too, so probably don't need to go there. I've become a master at substituting all kinds of people and all kinds of things as the objects of my worship. There's another name for that. It's called idolatry. I've substituted a lie for the truth so many times I've lost count. And so I look at this list and I fit every single category and I ask myself, what do I do with that? You guys helped me this morning with what I do with my list and the pronouncement over my own soul that I'm guilty. You sang my solution. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see my chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me, and like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. Can I get an amen from somebody in the room? In giving us heaven, Jesus doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we don't deserve, and that's what makes it so much more beautiful and amazing. Let's keep going. Verse 22, I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple and the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter into it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What does heaven promise you? It promises you full. Let me break it down. It promises you full presence in heaven. You won't need a temple. You won't need a tabernacle. You won't need a church. Because the separation from, between God and man will be completely removed and you will have access to the full presence of God. Just a clue for the believers in the room. You have that full presence now. You know that, don't you? Walk right into the throne room. Jesus, in fact, says, well, when you walk in, be bold. Secondly, full illumination. The light of the world will be fully illuminated as the light of heaven. You know what that means to me? Nothing will be able to hide in the shadows because there won't be any shadows. Everything will be on full display and nobody will be embarrassed because there'll be no more shame. Only God's glorious light illuminating everything. For those of you that spent, wow, a whole 18 hours in the dark, how much do you appreciate light? Practical, isn't it? There'll be no darkness. Thirdly, there'll be full unity. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue will be united. There'll be no barriers, no racism, no classes, no hierarchy. All of us will stand equal as co-heirs with Jesus Christ. There'll be full access. The Bible says the gates will never be shut. Heaven will always be open. Open forever. Always. No need to use a key. No need to punch in a security code. Full access because the kingdom that is of our God will then be ours. Number five, full purity. 
The Bible says there'll be no impurity in heaven, not an evil action, not an impure thought, not a disrespectful glance, not a lustful mind moment, just whatever is pure and right and noble. That's why God tells us now, while you're living down here, keep your mind on those things. That will keep you sane in this broken planet. And finally, full connection, full access to Jesus, nothing in between, a full and complete relationship. The description of the new Jerusalem is breathtaking. I can't do it justice. It's not possible. Let me just break down one little element of it. Each one of the gates is a monstrous single pearl. Can you imagine the size of that oyster? <laughs> just think about it for a second. The gates, the entry points are single, solitary pearls. Think about it for a second. A pearl is created through pain and irritation. A single grain of sand that gets inside of an oyster that begins to, to, to irritate its host. And so the host begins to wrap it in layer after protective layer until it's this beautiful, gorgeous pearl. The entry points of heaven were created out of the pain and irritation of sin that Jesus paid in full for us so we could have full access to his Father. Wow. The holy city is a cube. I could break down the dimensions for you, but I don't have time. Let me describe it this way. It's layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of absolute perfection. perfect. Always. And here's a kicker. It stays perfect even when we show up. <laughs> you know, as a kid, I used to hope that Jesus would delay heaven. I had a certain thing, a certain list of things that I wanted to accomplish before Jesus came back. I used to almost think that heaven was kind of a bit of a consolation prize. Like, God, I need to finish what I want to do down here, and then you're welcome to come back anytime. Because that heaven thing just seems a little off-putting, honestly. The whole idea of worshiping for the rest of eternity, I'm like, aren't we going to get tired of the song? <laughs> I don't feel that way anymore. I don't have a death wish. Don't get all freaked out, but I long for heaven. I'm sick being homesick. Every time I go to the hospital and see another friend in pain, I long for heaven because according to my Bible in heaven, cancer is a distant memory. I long for heaven because in heaven, Bietti's crystalline dystrophy and cystoid macular edema can't steal my wife's eyesight anymore. She'll have perfect sight. I want to be there. So unbelievably badly. But God says, before you get there, there's work to do, people. Why? Because I don't want anybody to miss out. So for the love of God, open your mouth and start talking about the beautiful promise of heaven. He's like, I don't know what to talk about. How about talking about what we're going to be full of in heaven and how we can live that out right now? I mean, look through everything that I listed off there is full 
And then let's pray and live so that people can see the fullness of our relationship with Jesus right here, right now, to a point where they're actually going to wonder what in the world is going on with that God. How do you find peace in the midst of all of this? How do you stay calm when the lights go out? How How do you not freak out when you open up a newspaper? Because God has filled my heart with a bold confidence that says it's all under control. I don't know about you, but I want to show God's full presence in my heart and in my life. I want Jesus to illuminate me so people can see his light in the deep recesses of my soul. I want to bring about unity of all people right now so that we don't need to continue in this garbage of actually pushing ourselves apart because of the color of our skin. I want to exercise the full access that God has already opened by storming heaven with my prayers and my praises. I want to embrace a pure relationship with my heavenly father so I can bring others into a full connection with him. When I do that, you know what I've got? I got a little slice of heaven on earth because I'm participating in his kingdom now. As I'm waiting, I I cling to the promise of deliverance. Verse 12, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. I will give each person according to what they've done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's Revelation 22, verses 12 and 13. It's just like, okay, so Jesus, you've been saying you've been coming soon for approximately 2,000 years. Why are you late? Why? Come on. We're waiting. Now's a good time. My refrigerator's getting warm now. Can I tell you why he's waiting? He told you in your Bible exactly why he's waiting. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some would understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. If you're here today and don't know Jesus, the reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is because he's waiting for you. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that God did not come back before I got a clue and came to him. I'm glad he didn't hang out a no vacancy sign in front of eternity before I had an opportunity to come to him. If you are here today and know Christ, that's what is waiting for you in heaven. If you're here today and don't know Christ, you can't, so you don't miss out. And let me beg you again, the fear of what may happen in the book of Revelation is a terrible motivator to come to Jesus. Knowing how much he loves you, that he gave his son for you, that he's been preparing heaven for you, the love of God, that's a beautiful motivator to come to Christ. I've been watching our church struggle over the last weeks as we've dealt with just so much pain inside of our family, so many people sick, so many people dying, so many people walking through tragedy. talking with Pastor Brian backstage last night and he talked about the very last identifier that Jesus identifies himself as in Revelation 22. He calls himself the morning star. 
is a good Manitoba kid, I know a lot about morning stars because we would see them. Here's one thing you need to know about Jesus, the morning star. Just like a natural morning star here, he always shows up in the darkest part of the night, right before the sun begins to shine. I don't care how dark you've been up to this point. I don't care how dark the journey has been. In Revelation 21, the morning star rises. Light illuminates the world. And those who've been walking in darkness get to see a great light. Don't miss that reunion. Would you pray with me today? Father God, I thank you for this moment and this day. Lord, I pray for all of my brothers and sisters in this room who know Christ. And I pray that today, as they leave this place, they would walk out so unbelievably grateful and thankful for amazing grace. God, I pray their heart would be full, their joy would be complete, and God, I pray that they would be so motivated to want to share Jesus because of this little snapshot of what's waiting for them in heaven. Father, I pray for any of, of my friends who may be here today who don't know Christ, and I pray right now, not out of fear, but out of love for you, that they would take you at your word, confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, because Lord, like we learned last week, the Bible says if we do that, then we will be saved. So Lord, I pray that no one would leave this place today without absolute full assurance of their eternal destination. God, thank you for a picture of heaven. Thank you for the hope that comes with it. We pray today with faith and boldness. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. God, we want the morning star to rise. It feels like the night is so unbelievably dark. God, hold us to the promise that you are coming soon. And in the meantime and in between time, May we be faithfully sharing you with everyone that you bring across our path. We give ourselves to that as we cling to the promise of heaven and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.